uh, we are going to be looking at the idea of being forgiven. And uh, the title, as you might have noticed it, is forgiven with an exclamation point. And I got to tell you, I am pretty stingy with my exclamation points. And so I don't use them very often. But today, as we look at this idea of being forgiven, I absolutely wanted to use that. And we are looking at two passages of scriptures that um, when you first come to them and read them, uh, can seem rather complicated. And we are looking rather, though, at a simple idea that is going to emerge from those. And that simple idea is that we are forgiven by God. And if we are forgiven by God, then we should also live with forgiveness for other people. As we go through the message today, uh, we are going to be going through it um, like we have gone to the doctor. And the very first thing that we are going to be finding is our diagnosis because we realize there is something wrong for us. And as we move through the message, uh, we are going to eventually find that our doctor has the cure for us. And so as I am speaking today, I'll be I'm having some doctor references for us to help us um, put these ideas in place. And the very first thing that we are going to begin with is our diagnosis and our diagnosis that we have comes to us from the prophet Hosea. And so the prophet Hosea is speaking to God's people somewhere about 800 years before Jesus. He is speaking to the people in the time of the kings. And as a prophet of God, his message will be what all prophets is. Turn to God, you're doing the wrong thing. And as with many of the prophets that we see in the Bible, he uses imagery to help get that point conveyed to God's people. And this imagery that we are going to find in Hosea 1 is a stinging imagery. And it is that God's people are like an unfaithful spouse. That is what God's people are like. They were called to be loyal. They were called to only have one God. But their wandering eye has taken them away. And they have followed other gods, just as a spouse might be unfaithful to his or her partner. I'm going to be reading to us today from the book of Hosea chapter 1. And as I am reading, uh, something that will be helpful to understand is that at this point when Hosea is speaking, there are two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom of Israel will eventually disappear, and the ten tribes that are part of it will be gone. The kingdom of Judah is the location of the temple and the location of the Jerusalem, and that kingdom will endure and later uh, take upon the name Israel. So I'm going to be reading to us Hosea chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. And those passages are in your worship guide. And so if you want to follow along with me, you can. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblain, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. 
Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. The Lord said to Hosea, Call her Lo Ruhamah, which means not loved. For I will no longer show love to Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horse, or by horsemen, but I, the Lord their God, will save them. And she weaned Lo Ruhamah. Goma had another son. Then the Lord said, Call him Lo Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sands of the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. As we see here in the passage, Hosea, the prophet of God, is instructed to marry Gomer, who will be an unfaithful spouse to him. He is told to go and marry this woman who will repeatedly betray their marriage vows. This is not a one-time thing, as bad as that is. This is an ongoing unfaithfulness with many other partners. And we see that she will be like an adulterous wife, just as this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. The diagnosis for the people is an incurable disease of unfaithfulness to their God, which in many ways is our story as well. God then says to Hosea, have children with this unfaithful wife of yours. And each of these children will be given a name that will reflect the consequence of the people's unfaithfulness. The first child to be born is called Jezreel. And that will punish the house of Jehu, who was a king of Israel. And he will be punished for the massacre that he did at Jezreel. There at that place, Jehu slaughtered the family of Ahab. And Ahab was an evil man before God. But Jehu, in the slaughtering of Ahab, takes it too far. And as we see and think here of Jehu and the killing of Ahab, this evil man before God, Ahab and his wife Jezebel committed great atrocities before God and even were prophesied against during their lives that this judgment indeed would come, which Jehu carries out. But even in the Jehu carrying out this judgment, we see now later judgment comes upon him. And as we see the judgment here spoken of Jehu, it speaks to the complicated nature of evil. First, there is evil which we choose. There are things that we do wrong. We know they are wrong. And yet, we still do them. And in doing those, we look and we think of the judgment that might come. And it seems understandable. It's one of those that as we see the judgment that is there, we say, yeah, I did wrong. I knew it was wrong. No wonder God is not happy with that. But also, as we begin to see with J.F. Hill, there is evil that is done that is created by the circumstances around us. And do we live in a world that 
is infiltrated with evil. And in the midst of this difficult world, sometimes there are no right choices before us. Only the choices that might be categorized as least wrong. But yet, they are still wrong at seeming no fault to our own. Is it right? Is it right for God to be upset about these things? Is it right for God to judge us in these things? We say that is unfair, and indeed it is unfair. But we do not worship a fair God. A fair God would hold us accountable for the things that we do wrong. We worship a God who is most certainly unfair. We worship a God who extends us forgiveness, which we have not earned. We worship a God who extends us kindness, that we have not earned. We worship a God who extends us grace that we have not earned. Our God is unfair, but it is to our best that that is the case. We see judgment does await that the prophet Hosea comes and says in verse 4 as he proclaims, I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. And indeed, that end will come. Hosea then has a second child with his unfaithful wife, Gomer. And this second child is going to be called Lo-Ruhamah, which means not love. And through this child, Hosea proclaims that Israel will no longer receive love. They will no longer be forgiven. Their credit line is maxed out. There is no more credit to be given by God. But to Judah, to the kingdom of Judah, they will be saved. It says in verse 7, as God speaks to Judah, I will show love to Judah and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, but by, or by horses or horsemen, but I, the Lord, their God, will save them. We find ourselves with a confounding sequence of proclamations. Some will be loved, but others will be saved. That is what the prophet Hosea proclaims. As we would think of this as a doctor, once again, we're talking of our diagnosis, the people's diagnosis of unfaithfulness. Imagine going to your doctor and they tell you something like this. Well, you've got this funny illness. Part of your body is going to die and part will live. To us, we would come and say to our doctor, how can this be? How can I be half alive and half dead? And I imagine as we were to ask our doctor this question, the doctor would just give us a shrug. So it is, which wouldn't seem to be much help. Homer, uh, and Hosea have a third child, and this child is named Lo-Amin, which means not my people. And God there declares in verse 9 that you are not my people, and I am not your God, which is a stinging statement from God. Because if we were to look 
through the Bible, from beginning to end, we would find the phrase of God saying, I will be their God and they will be my people. In fact, if we were to look at the biblical story as it proclaims God's love for the people that he created, this is the theme that pulls it together. God constantly saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. When the people do wrong, this is still God's stance. When the people go their own way, this is still God's position. I will be your God. The day has not yet fully arrived, but it indeed will arrive. Yet God here, speaking to the kingdom of Israel, says, You are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet, yet the word yet comes in. And the prophecy continues on. Yet. The Israelites, these people who have just been prophesied against, are like the sand of the seashore, which is a biblical expression of saying, there will be a lot of them. And they are called the children of God. They are the children of God. And we see as the passage continues on that these two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, will come together again and in point one leader. If we were to think of our diagnosis that we are receiving from our doctor, we are left with a conflicting message. First, we see that the people are going to be disowned by God, yet they are his children. If we were to think of the doctor speaking to us, the doctor would be like, you are going to die one of the most painful deaths that there could ever be. But don't worry, you're going to be fine. And you would be like, how is that going to work? If you went to your doctor and they told you that, <laughs> I, mean, I would get a new doctor, right? Um, it is time for a second opinion because that diagnosis makes no sense to us. How can we die but yet be fine? Yet, yet, with God, all things are possible. Let us see how. We are going to look now at our cure. As I mentioned earlier, we have been diagnosed with unfaithfulness to our God. But there is a cure. And the cure is this. God's forgiveness for us. There is a quandary for God because God's forgiveness hinges upon a scale. The evil that has been done must be paid for. There is a debt that is in place that must be paid. It is the nature of God's judgment, not in a bad way, but in a good way. The idea that the wrongs that we have done, the consequences must be felt. To be forgiven, something must be given in exchange. There must be a bartering system that takes place between us and God. And indeed, we will see that forgiveness comes at a cost. We will talk more on that in a few moments. So how does God forgive our unfaithfulness? Our debt is paid through 
Christ. Our debt is paid through Jesus Christ. That is our cure. The forgiveness of God that comes through Jesus Christ. And through that forgiveness, we are able to reconnect with our God. I'm going to read from us now from the book of Colossians. And this is a letter that was written to the early church. This comes after the time of Jesus. And this is a time when the church has begun to form in the world and has begun to take root and grow in different places. Let me read for us now from Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised, but with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. That is a difficult passage to be able to immediately draw information from. So I'm going to break it down for us. We're going to see some different parts of this, and hopefully we will be able to bring some clarity to that passage. Uh, There are three aspects of this passage I want you to understand. The first is that Christ, that is Jesus, is the fullness of deity. And Jesus Christ, as the fullness of deity, is authorized to solve our problem. All the power of God rests in Jesus Christ. In the language of a doctor, Jesus is absolutely certified. He has the degree. He's passed the necessary test. He's gone through the necessary schooling. He has the necessary experience. He can solve our problem. The passage then mentions circumcision. And circumcision is the Old Testament sign of inclusion. And through circumcision, the people had a sign that they were part of God's people. And we see that Jesus Christ for us provides a circumcision. It is not a physical act as we saw in the Old Testament, but rather a spiritual act. And this circumcision reflects that we have become the family of God. We who were once far away have been brought near. We ourselves have been grafted alongside Jesus Christ. And we have become bonded to Christ. And with that, we have connected our destiny. The destiny of Jesus Christ has become our own. And the third thing that we see out of this passage is the idea of baptism. And just as Christ was dead and buried, so are we. And so are our sins. And just as Christ was raised from the dead, so are we. But we have a hope of being raised without the evil that put us there. We see this in verse 12. It says, you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God. If we were to think of this in medical language, we find that Jesus has the antibodies to death. He has found the way to overcome it. And Jesus freely gives those antibodies to us. And this cure that we have, it has an effect. And the effect is that we are forgiven by 
God. We have been working our way to this part of the scripture. The idea that we are forgiven by God. And I've lo- if I've lost you through some of the details, that's understandable. But I want, you, I want you to join me back now as we look at this final aspect of being forgiven by God. I'm going to read to us. Continue out of Colossians 2.13. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authority, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Through Christ, we have been made alive. And just as he lives after that, so do we. Because our sins have been forgiven. I'm going to read from verse 13, moving into 14, so that we can hear that again. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. The evil within us, the wrongs within us, the things that we tell no one else, the secrets that we keep of what we have done, Jesus took those and nailed them to the cross. All the evil you've ever thought about, Jesus took it and put it on the cross. And the cross is an instrument of death. It has no other purpose than to kill what goes on it. And that evil, those wrongs, they were killed because of the forgiveness that we have in God. Our sins, they died as Jesus died. And then we were raised to a newness of life through Jesus Christ, the one who defeats death. And we are fully, completely, and wholly forgiven by God. I want you to hear that. We are completely fully and wholly forgiven by our God. Completely. We think, no, what about, no, that too. Well, maybe you did, if you knew about, no, that one as well. It's like, you can't believe what I did. You can't believe that, that thing. No. All of it. Forgiven by God. There is a price that must be paid for what we have done wrong. And Jesus paid it for us. He gave up his life for us so that we might be forgiven. There is an old hymn that goes, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And those words are indeed true. As we understand the forgiveness that we have received through God, we know that scripturally we are called to extend that forgiveness to others. And just as we will pray in the Lord's prayer later, 
that God would forgive us of our wrongs, just as we forgive those who wrong us. So today, I hope you readily receive the forgiveness that God offers. Even in those areas where you don't think it possible, it is. And if you have received that forgiveness, it comes with this, that we must extend forgiveness to others. That neighbor that drives you crazy, that's the one I'm talking about. That family member who still hates you for that thing you did two decades ago, yeah, that's the one I'm talking about. The person who hurt you in unimaginable ways, forgive them. The one who abused you, the one who took advantage of you, the one who took from things that you could never get back, yes. Forgive them as well. And I encourage you in the forgiveness of others that you will find a freedom that you have never known. Because if you hold that anger within you, it simply festers within us. And it rots us away from the inside out. But through the power of God working through us, we have the ability to forgive the greatest wrongs done to us. And in forgiving those, we will experience the fullness of life to which God calls us to. So today, do you need God's forgiveness in your life? You've got it. You've got it. Are there people in your life that you need to extend that forgiveness to? Probably all of us have some of that. I encourage us to take that step, to move forward in the forgiveness of others. Let us take a moment and quietly reflect upon today's message.